You're about to join Niels Kostrup Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Alan Dunn and I, Niels Kastrup-Larsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global markets through the lens of a rules-based investor. Now, if you're newer to the show, I hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity enough to check out the back catalogue and listen to the past episodes you may have missed. Like last week's episode with Nick, where we, among many topics, discussed the pros and the cons of trend following the trend follows, which is a bit of a mouthful to say, frankly. Also, I would like to really encourage you to listen to the midweek episode where Harry had a great conversation with Nikki Ferguson, who specializes in different types of analysis of the energy markets and what really drives the price of them, which I think you'll find a bit different and highly interesting. And of course, not to forget, I really do hope that you will make time to tune in to the episodes that Alan and I have done with the largest CTA firms in the world and where we really try to take the pulse of all of these successful managers more or less at the same moment in time and cover a wide range of relevant topics for the firms themselves and the industry as a whole. And we still have quite a few more to publish in this series. So, Alan, it seems like we speak on a very regular basis at the moment. Uh, how are you doing? How are things in Dublin? Yeah, everything is good here. Um, looking forward to the weekend and, uh, yeah, good to catch up with you again. Absolutely, likewise. And uh, we do actually, and I say this every time, by the way, but we do actually have some great topics that we want to discuss today. So I hope people will uh, enjoy our conversation. Now, we are recording a day early due to my uh, traveling schedule at the moment. Um, so I don't have a detailed market wrap really to share. I have not followed the market so closely this week, but we are instead going to uh, discuss a few more global macro observations. And I think, and I find this interesting, I think last month we did the same and we were talking about how investors are pricing at the time, you know, uh, lower inflation for sure, lower interest rates um, uh, later the year in the year. And we may even have said, um, that it looked like investors were pricing markets for perfection. Maybe not so much this time around. So what are your thoughts on this, Alan? Yeah, I, th I think that's uh, actually, I'd forgotten we'd use that that uh, phrase, but but that seems to be the case because actually, I mean, when I look back at markets over the last maybe six months or so, and you go back to, you know, the summer of last year, August, September, October, equities were falling and, and the big fear in markets was really, stagflation you know we had this high inflation and and there was a, you know a general uh, fear of of recession as we moved into december i would say of last year obviously risk assets had rebounded a bit and i think there was a, a you know some of the the worst of the inflation numbers seemed to have been behind us markets had kind of transitioned into probably a soft landing type scenario yes there was going to be a downturn but inflation was going to come down and the downturn probably wouldn't be too bad when we got to the end of January, I think markets had gone as far as, as we said, kind of price for perfection, really pricing kind of a Goldilocks scenario again of, you know, we'd had the news that about China reopening, um, the economic numbers out of Europe weren't as bad, the numbers out of the US seemed to be holding up and inflation was coming down. So it seemed to be the best of, of both worlds in terms of, you know, no sign of the actual inflation and, and inflation of, of recession and inflation coming down. We've had a big change, I would say, during the course of February. You know, if you look at the bond markets in particular, 
10 year yields are up about 60 basis points, two year yields up about 70, I think. And if you look at the euro dollar futures, um, you know, um, you know, probably about the same uh, in terms of additional hikes based in and, and the market really taking out that expectation of rate cuts, you know, that that that, that people had built in um, and a similar scenario in, in, in Europe. So I think what we have is is that certainly the theme that has emerged now is this kind of no landing, you know, from from kind of soft landing to no landing. I think when people say no landing, what they're talking about is is a delayed landing or basically rates staying higher for for, for longer and, and the landing not coming to, till next year. Um, so I think that's been the big change. And, and obviously what that's meant is obviously higher yields. Equities have held up okay. It's been choppy in the, in the last week or two, kind of have, have come off the highs a bit, but, but, but not a big sell-off. And obviously we've had a a big rebound in, in, the, in the dollar. So, so I think that's the big story. Um, I mean, you can say, well, what changed in February? Uh, and I think a few things changed. One, uh, the actual inflation numbers have, 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 have picked up again. Um, so, you know, we had, well, we had a couple of things. First of all, there was revisions to the CPI data. So not just the most recent numbers, but the, the, the previous numbers were, were revised and they were revised higher. And then if you look at the uh, the PCE data and the core PCE, they were stronger than expected uh, last month. Um, so if you look at, say, the three-month annualized uh, core PCE, uh, you know, in January, if you're looking at the December number, it was down to 3.6%, but now that's back up to 4.7%. So, and even if you look at the kind of the stripping out every, everything, I know a lot of people are looking at the super core services, X housing and energy, and that's still going at about 4.1% um, annualized. So very much a sense that, that, that oh, while it looked like, you know, that, that, that we were in the midst of a disinflationary uh, process, that, that that looks less clear now on the back of these revisions and on the fact that, you know, we've had uh, stronger numbers recently. And also a sense that, you know, there was a lot of factors that were pushing down inflation, you know, reopening, you know, uh, supply chains normalizing, you know, the big the, the big uh, fall down in, in used car prices. So if we're not going to have that disinflationary force on the good side going forward, you know, then 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 inflation might settle at this kind of higher level of, of around four four percent or so. And obviously on the economic side, you know, we've had a pretty pretty robust data too. You know, non-farm payrolls uh, last month was strong. We've had strong inflation, uh, sorry, strong uh, spending and, and wage growth. So as I say, the, the overall scenario is definitely, you know, uh, one of stronger than expected uh, economic data and and probably a bit of a surprise for people on the inflation side. And, and, and you know, I think we can delve into why that was the case. But at a high level, I think that's been the theme. Yeah, I mean, the great thing about these conversations, Alan, is we can go back and listen to our last conversation and either find out how wrong we were or maybe how right we were at the time. But I think we nailed it to some extent because I think we were skeptical about, you know, this is almost too good to be true at the time. And um, it's un it would be very unusual if after such a dramatic economic uh, shift and regime change we've had in the last couple of years, that everything would just kind of, you know, go according to uh, a textbook. Uh, so uh, I'm personally not surprised about these things. Uh, I don't think it's going to be a, a, um, a straight line either up or down. Um, and I think that, um, and maybe not you and I have talked about this before, but I know that it's one of the things that um, I've mentioned, perhaps not recently, but it's this thing about inflation. And 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 my understanding is you can have predictable in inflation, you can have unpredictable inflation. I think for me, it's always been 
been, um, you know, my my view that this is probably going to be pretty unpredictable because we there's so many things that we haven't seen before that's that's taking place, and therefore it um, it wouldn't surprise me if we're going to see these uh, changes. And actually, you could say to some extent that um, maybe the central banks did pivot. But they pivoted from being dovish to hawkish again, so it's not really the pivot people were hoping for. But there has certainly been a change also in their tone uh, to some extent. And one thing, um, and this is not necessarily back-adjusted data to perfection, but I did notice on a continuous chart of the Bund that the Bund made a new low uh, yesterday, I think, uh, which is quite interesting in price. Uh, U.S. bonds not quite uh, making a new low compared to uh, October or whenever it was we had a uh, a low last time. Uh, so that is interesting. But then at the same time, I have to say I'm probably a little bit surprised that we have new all-time highs in the last within the last couple of weeks for from the DAX and and the FTSE. I mean, if you think about all the things that's going on in Europe right now, you that's probably not what I would have put first on my and on my agenda saying, yeah, equities are going to make new all-time highs. Um, so lots of uh, interesting uh, stuff. Uh, definitely equity investors still enjoying some sense of optimism, but you can't really say that about bond investors uh, at, at the moment. Your point on, on Europe, yeah, 10-year yields in, in Germany up to, um, you know, about 2.7%. And I was looking at, you know, the Euribor futures, uh, for December 2023. So this year now, you know, pricing in 4% rates uh, by the end of this year. Um, and, you know, it's just remarkable when you look back at where that contract was trading at the start of last year, it was basically pricing in rates still at zero uh, at the end of this year. So like in, in the course of, of a year, you know, or 13 months or so, 14 months, I guess, uh, you know, we've gone from the market expecting rates to still be at zero at the end of this year to, to now expecting it to be at, at 4% in Europe, which is, uh, you know, and that's reflecting the fact that, you know, we are seeing that stickiness in, in inflation in, in the Eurozone as well, you know, um, core inflation still running at well over 5% in, in Europe. So, Whereas maybe at uh, going back six months or so, there was a sense the inflation problem was more, more going to be more of a challenge in the US. Now it's looking like it could be more of a challenge in, in Europe. So as you say, yeah, surprising. You know, certainly uh, we'll get on to talk about equity markets and, and, and CTA positioning, I think, in equity markets. But but there has been a stronger uptrend in European equities. You know, we had the big, big run up in, in, in January and uh, they've held in well so far so yeah I, it's it's a little bit surprising but that's what the market is the way it's trading at the moment yeah i mean okay so just a short comment on the inflation i do have something completely different i wanted to remind you about what we talked about also a month ago but but just on the inflation front i don't really follow all the details and the narratives but but i did come across that in denmark at the moment they're going through a lot of the salary negotiations uh, in in the labor market uh, in the private sector right now, and um, the first thing of, the first ones I saw that came out was saying kind of the headline four percent, but over two years it didn't sound like much, and I was surprised that people would even consider it, frankly, because that's clearly way below what inflation rates are. But I am seeing now that some of these uh, negotiations have kind of panned out in 4% plus per year now for two years. So we are we are getting to these points where, as you say, inflation could be much more sticky because it's filtering out into some of these other parts of the economy. So I just wanted to mention that maybe you follow some of the other ones. I know obviously in the UK there's strikes. I mean, I just came back from the UK. There's strikes like everywhere, teachers, uh, healthcare, et cetera, et cetera. But... I also wanted to remind you about another thing that just shows you 
how uncertain or how unpredictable the world is right now and of course why we so much love to be in the systematic space and that is last month we were talking you know i wouldn't say surprised but but this was definitely news at the time that nato was considering sending tanks to ukraine you know five weeks later now we're talking about fighter jets that's more or less you know slotted in for being i mean it just shows you how the world is changing so rapidly at the moment so no wonder it's hard to be an investor right now and uh, you know diversification is going to probably stand people well if they can find some really true diversification but but you know we can go anywhere we can stay on this uh, alan tell me where you want to go with this yeah i guess the other topic that i think that's interesting that's coming through on this and, and i think we've talked about it before is um you know, um, you know, as as we say, we're we're now looking at rates up to four percent in in Europe. You know, and 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 above five. Um, I saw um, the economist Jason Furman saying that the, the Fed needs to get to about six percent um, uh, to 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 for for the economy to uh, to slow down. It, it's kind of interesting because if you go back to the start of the tightening cycle, most people, I, I say most people, I mean, I'm being generalizing, but there was a sense that rates couldn't go above maybe the peak of the last tightening cycle, which was about two and a quarter, two and a half percent, because if you, you know, rates go above there, everything will break and there's so much debt and everything will crack. Now we're up to, you know, up, heading towards five. And, and what we're seeing is that the economy seems to be not slowing in response to higher rates. So why is that? Um, and I think, I, I think it comes back to this this expression, you know, the economists use frequently, but people kind of don't really stop and think about it, that monetary policy, you know, acts with long and variable lags, you know, so, you know, what does that mean? It means that when you raise interest rates, you don't, it, it there's not a linear response that that is always the same, that rates go up 25 basis points and the economy slows by half a percent, or there's nothing like that. So we wrote a paper on this uh, back in December on that topic, long and variable lags. And if you look at, you know, the, the last uh, five tightening cycles in, in the US, you know, back in 1998, you know, Fed funds went up uh, about th uh, three and a quarter percent. And then you did have a downturn, you, you know, late 80s into early 90s savings and loans crisis. The, the unemployment rate went up by two and a half, two point eight percentage points in that period. So that was what you'd expect. But then you had 1994, you know, the Fed raised rates uh, three percent, but then, but you had you did have a soft landing in that situation. The, the unemployment rate only went up zero point four percent. Then you had ninety nine to two thousand um, rates went up at one and three quarter percent, uh, and you did have a you know you had a significant. Uh, obviously, you had the, the dot com bubble burst, and the unemployment rate went up two and a half percent. Then, uh, following that, uh, then you had the tightening cycle oh four to oh six. And in that period, then, you know, initially the economy seemed to be able to withstand higher rates, but then ultimately we had the global financial crisis in, in, in starting in 07 into 08. Unemployment went up uh, over 5% in that period. And then again, uh, you know, the tightening cycle, very slow initially between 2015 to 2018. Um, in total, rates went up uh, two and a quarter percent. And it was by and large a soft landing until we had COVID. So, you know, you don't really know. Sometimes you can, so you don't know how quickly the, the, the economy is going to respond to higher rates and what's the magnitude of the response to higher rates. And what we're seeing at the moment is, is very little response. And that could be, there's a lot of different, you know, a lot of reasons for that. You know, it could be because we still have the excess cash in the system from all the stimulus uh, that we got during COVID. 
that could be one reason. Um, another point is, you know, how QE has, because of QE, uh, central banks hold a lot of assets now, and banks would have held those assets before. So banks would have had losses on their fixed income portfolios, and that would be impacting them. But that's not happening this time round. So that kind of bank disintermediation dis- dis- has, has, has changed. And it could be that people have already locked in low rates, but they will have to refinance maybe at some point in the future. So you could have a delayed response. So, you know, all of these things, like what share of, of, of the debt is, is fixed versus floating and, and when when the refinancing is going to take place, all of those factors impact to this, the, you know, the extent to which higher rates impact the economy. And that's why you have this uh, variability, whereas people tend to think, you know, very linear, linearly and rates go up, the economy should slow. But actually, maybe it won't for a while. And then if the Fed does more, then we'll get a, an even bigger response later on. So that's why I think it is extremely difficult to time these things. Uh, and yeah, goes goes back to having a rules-based approach for, for managing <laughs> risk around it. Yeah, it's funny how we always get back to that. I mean, but anyways, <laughs> if, the other thing that I've been pondering a little bit uh, when you mention all of these things, I mean, this is, of course, uh, my thesis, uh, in, not not in the sense that I necessarily came up with it, but I certainly adopted it a couple of years ago. And, you know, that the world was changing. And um, I couldn't necessarily two years ago uh, articulate it the way I uh, I did last year. But I think certainly this idea of, of going from globalization to deglobalization, I think that sums it up pretty, pretty neatly. But when you, if you internalize that, that's just a major, major shift because we had globalization for, you know, 70 years. And that's really where kind of the whole world trade got, um, you know, in, in, invent, or not, I wouldn't say invented because of course it's been there for centuries, but, but it certainly got um, put on, on steroids and uh, we, we managed to get this incredibly efficient uh, world economy. So I'm just thinking, okay, well, if, if we now are going in the other direction, so we're going to into deglobalization. I'm not saying we are for sure, but it certainly smells like that way, like that. You know, couldn't you expect that some of these normal economic uh, reaction patterns that everybody is kind of putting their uh, chips on, maybe they're not going to hold up anymore. I mean, maybe something's completely different going to happen, and I just don't see a lot of a lot of commentators, op- you know, leaving any room. For, for these things, we're still expecting the Fed to react in a certain way and the economy to react in a certain way. And I'm thinking, I don't know if it's going to react the way it used to react because it's changing and it's changing to something that none of us have ever experienced. Um, and we've just been through two episodes that none of us had experienced in the first place anyway. So, so I'm very open for surprises, uh, let me put it that uh, way, in the numbers, in, uh, you know, just the fact, as you say, that unemployment is holding, uh, you know, it's, it, it's it's really holding up very well. Um, that's a surprise. And, and why? maybe it'll continue to do that. Maybe, you know, this is also this, you know, the new economy. Of course, we know from the demographics that there are certainly some big uh shifts uh, in certain countries right now with uh, boomers retiring and maybe we haven't really probably accounted for that. We know that the Chinese suddenly came out uh, a few months ago saying, oh, we overcounted 100 million and by the way, most of them are young people. So what does that do? And and so on and so forth. So all I'm saying is that I think a lot of these economic textbooks that we all expect to, um, to deliver some kind of... Um, 
um, how should I put it, um, expected outcomes. I'm not so sure that that, that we're going to have them like that. Uh, anyways, that's just my. No, I, I agree. I mean, I, I, look, you've. It's true. You've got the uncertainty about your, the, the future, but you also have the uncertainty about the, the present. You know, you talk about deglobalization, which is something we say, and we kind of say it is something, you know, that, that is evolving. But there is a debate around that as well at the moment among economists. I know Adam Tooze and Neil Ferguson, the, the is economic historian, there's a debate as to whether it's deglobalization or, or slow globalization, whether globalization is just continuing, but just at a slower rate. So we don't have a lot of you know clear data on the on that kind of the supply side of uh, you know it's not like it's published monthly or anything so it is very hard to get that read and we'll only con we'll, we'll only know probably with the benefit of history what what the, what the trend is and you know maybe in a, in a couple of years Anyways, let's uh, move on to um, just maybe a little, uh, because we just finished the month of February, maybe just a, a couple of minutes on discussing early takeaways from uh, the shortest month of the year. Um, probably some investors will will be happy to know that it was it is the shortest month. But uh, from a CTA slash trend following point of view, it certainly looks like it was an okay month and perhaps you could say for some it was even better than okay. Um, and of course, driven by exactly those things we've talked about, uh, fixed income in particular. But I will say, when I look at our own portfolio, at least, I would say gains were, you know, came from quite a few different sectors, maybe not to the same extent as fixed income, but it wasn't just fixed income, I would say, uh, at least in our case um, for February. And um, I one thing I did notice, and I don't say people just, I just want to um, preface this by saying, I don't mention this with any particular agenda, um, but because we do discuss replication strategies quite a lot, and we did talk about last year that maybe replicators were doing so well last year because trends were fairly easy, fairly stable. I have noticed at least that um, the trend replicator that we like to follow um, and that tracks the Sokja and CTA index has not quite lived up to uh, uh, to be able to deliver uh, the gross uh, returns uh, before fees for, of that index so far this year. Um, and I think it is because trend it's beginning it's getting a little bit harder. Trends are not just in a straight line, and we're seeing a little bit of movement around in terms of exposure. Um, now, of course, it's still very early days for 2023, so who knows where it's going to end up. But it is important just to note that maybe some of the, at least my own concerns, um, you know, uh, have been proven so far this year at least. My own trend barometer finished at. 41, so that suggests kind of a neutral month anyways, um, but the numbers are as follows, beat up 50 up 1.34%, pretty much the same for the year, Sokjen CTA index up 2.09, up one and a quarter for the year, Sokjen trend one up 1.85, up 0.45 for the year, and the short term traders index, perhaps not surprising, down for the month, um, quarter percent, down 39 basis points, and that in a month where Equities were down a little, 2.5% or so, and bonds were down. So that positive correlation between stocks and bonds continues, which of course is why everybody needs some CTA and trend exposure, in our opinion. Anything that has uh, stood out for you uh, from the data you've seen so far from managers? No, I just as similar to yourself, I, I would say generally a, a positive month, the usual uh, dispersion, obviously, and you know probably declines and 
fixed income markets, uh, the big opportunity, and obviously the dollar has bounced back. So, you know, we, we, it, it was a month. We, we've kind of gone through a period of dollar strength to dollar weakness to dollar strength again. So certainly, um, you know, how responsive models would have been to that what would have definitely been um, important. And then I guess, as you say, on the, on the replication side, it could be that in that type of environment where trends are in the midst of changing, it could be uh, it could be more uh, typical, uh, difficult to run that strategy. But but no, I think it's been uh, you know a positive month. But but kind of you know year to date uh, on the managed future side, positive, but but with a decent amount of dispersion even already at this stage. I, I would say. Yeah, no, I think that's perfectly fair. Now we we mentioned this thing about um, exposure uh, probably being a little bit different um, because of how trends have uh, panned out the last few months, and of course. A couple of days ago, Bloomberg Lou Wang posted a, um, a, a an article, uh, which is one of those things that certainly gets my blood flowing when I see them because it's again these investment banks coming out saying exactly what's going to happen in terms of equity exposure in particular for trend followers uh, if the markets go through certain levels, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, we brought it up from time to time. We're going to do it again uh, for a few minutes now because uh, the headline was as dramatic as J.P. Morgan says, quants to sell 50 billions of, of stock if chart test fails. A break in the S&P 500 below 200-day uh, average could spur exodus. Quants more sensitive to route than a month ago. Uh, that's something that Morgan Stanley. So, I mean, you can take it wherever you want to go, Um I think we need to uh, just push back a little bit. No, I mean, we've spoken about this before and, and I've seen uh, there's a couple of strategists uh, that write about this uh, very frequently and I've always found it to be far from, you know, uh, the experience of, of kind of what, what I have seen in terms of CTA positioning, actual positioning in the past. And, um, you know, uh, but actually it's, it's quite a nice segue into um, a paper that was released late last year, so, so Quantico wrote a paper called The Footprint of uh, Trend Following. And actually, in the paper, they say, um, you know, uh, today there are numerous models and research groups seeking to quantify and monitor the, the supposed market positioning of trend followers. And you'll often see trend headlines like trend followers are expected to buy or sell an aggregate X billion notion of equities next week. So exactly uh, what what we're talking about. So so what they do in in the paper is they're trying to estimate the market participant the market participation of trend following uh, CTAs in 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 the uh, in the futures markets. And what they're doing is basically trying to provide an estimate of the trend following industries. Uh, share of positions held and volume traded in 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 the market. So um, it's it's a topic that has come up. You know, I would say, you know, periodically it, it was probably uh, two to four. You know, back in 2019 as well. Um, you know, when there was concerns about is there too much money in trend following and is that was that the reason for uh, uh, you know performance. Um, uh, but it, 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 it's probably back now because people will say, oh, trend following and, and managed features might raise lots of assets and, you know, they're going to be too big and that will lead to, to de deteriorating performance, etc. So what they do in the paper, the first thing is that you have to say, well, what's the size of the CTA industry, which is always, and what's the size of trend following? So they, they've gone with, uh, they've kind of assumed that trend following assets are 300 billion. Now, they look at the Barclays CTA um, 
Berkeley Hedge, uh, sorry, data on on CTA managed futures, uh, AUM, uh, which was it was three hundred and sixty five billion in the Q four. It was it was over four hundred billion in Q three when they wrote the paper. But they take out the systematic traders uh, subcomponent of that, which was uh, three hundred and sixty five billion back then. Now you could quibble with that. I mean, uh, you know, when when I was at Abbey Capital, we did a study on this, and uh, what we did is we we we, we delved into all of the the constituents and we and we uh, split all the managers between trend and non-trend and about only about half the managers were were, were trend following so it was more like uh, 160 170 billion you know so I, I would say 300 billion could be on the high side against that obviously there are people running trend following uh, programs that are not CGAs so large public pension funds we know are doing this running it in-house so you know I would say you got to yeah, you could bias it up a little bit for that. The second thing is you have to adjust for the level of volatility. So the key thing is what level of vol are these assets running at? You could be running 300 billion at six six vol and it's only going to have mar- half the market uh, footprint of um, 300 billion at 12 vol. They assume uh, 12 vol um, is, is the kind of... Uh, how they they calculated the positions when we did the study uh, before we the median uh, trend follower uh, vol was 13% so so they're not far off but it, but again it would it would mean that yeah it it would be fair enough to bias up there and if their if their number is a little bit biased higher then that would be fair enough but still 300 billion i would say senses maybe a, being cons- conservative and certainly on the high side as opposed to uh, the low side. And what to do then is uh, construct a, a, a trend-following model. So assuming that a trend-following model was being run at you know, 300 billion in assets at 12 all, what would the positions look like? And what, how does that compare to the volume in open interest uh, traded in the market? Now, they don't give, give the details, the precise details of the trend-following model, but, but I think you could assume it's kind of a you know, multi-speed uh, with short-term, long-term and, and medium-term trend-following. One kind of interesting adjustment that they make when they look at the volume and open interest data, they take out uh, all of the the, the uh, volume and, and open interest related to spread trading, calendar spread trading, because they say, you know, that's not uh, um, the kind of liquidity that that directional traders can access. So I can see the logic for that in terms of of the open interest. I guess uh, I mean obviously those traders are still in that market dealing from you know in terms of they could still be potential counterparts for for a trade. Um, you know, just because they're doing a spread trade, I would have thought. Um, but I could see if you're trying to measure how big a footprint trend follower trend followers as are as as a percentage of the total directional amount of money in in the market. Yeah, it makes sense to to, to take to strip those out. And it is interesting. You know, they present data on that front. You know, if you and as once you see the data, it makes sense. If you look at markets like short-term interest rates and commodities, uh, a lot more of the volume is outside the front contract of the futures market, and there's a lot more spread trading activity. So, makes sense. Obviously, within the commodities, you know, people do a lot more uh, calendar spreads based on you know their read on supply and demand out the curve, and obviously then in the short-term interest rate markets, people are trying to express a view on rate at different points in the curve. So that's why you'll get a lot more calendar-related activity on that side too. Whereas if you look at um, equity indices, 
uh, and bonds, it's much more focused on the front month contract. So in terms of their findings... Um, well, before you, before you reveal that, before you reveal that, I really would like just to give people a little bit more of the context from this article. Just so now we have a firm, you know, experienced in the CTA industry, doing a lot of homework to find out what do we really think the uh, footprint of CTAs are. Then on the other side, we have these articles popping up on Bloomberg um, where investment banks, in my view, and I'm also uh, happy to share why I think they do it, but they're coming with these incredible headlines, usually uh, headlines that um, could instill some fear in investors. And I can only imagine that they do this um, to get some turnovers or get people to trade, get people to get out of some positions maybe, because why else would you do it, um, frankly, especially because you're talking about your own clients, which are the CTAs, of course. But they, they use words like, should the benchmark gauge slip under the its average price for the past 200 days, so-called commodity trading advisors should be forced to unload about 50 billion of equities, the JP Morgan team estimate. So that's one thing they came out with. Um, and they use words like quants traders were pushed to unwind their bearish wages during the January uh, rally, a move that has made their positions more uh, now more sensitive to down to the downside. And again, they could say here, this is I think uh, Morgan Stanley, a continued sell-off in the vicinity of five percent would force. And then they even use the word systemic not even spelling it right, systematic strategies, but they write systemic strategies to dump 55 billion to 60 billion of shares in the following week, according to an estimate from Morgan Stanley. Now, they're, they're coming up with these completely crazy suggestions, frankly, um, and I can only suggest that they listen to Alan and me discussing uh, all of these points with CTAs because you will find that that is not how we do things. Um, far from it. Um, there's so much more to uh, that goes into it. So anyways, I just wanted to give some of those colorful headlines, Alan. And then now that I've sort of set the stage about what these investment banks are saying about the, the influence of CTAs and the big volume that's going to go through, let's talk about what Quantica found in terms of, of yeah. this. So in terms of findings, you know, what they found was that CTAs, that trend-following CTAs accounted for about 0.6% of directional traded volume in equity. So, yes, if you read you the sure Bloomberg it's article, six, it's... <laughs> you're, sure, you're sure it's not 6-0%? No, like. it's not 6 it's 0.6% was, was uh, their, their estimate. Um, so, you know, and they found that it, it accounted for... Now, 10% of the directional open interest was held on average uh, in equi so in equities. So that's basically saying uh, if you take all the open interest held by people who are taking directional risk... Um, so I, I, who is that? I guess it's uh, macro traders as well. It's it's re real money accounts. So CTAs are, would be about ten percent of that uh, is what they uh, in terms of the open interest. But in terms of the the directional volume traded, obviously there's a lot of volume intraday. Uh, it's only zero point six percent. So in terms of doesn't sound like an enormous footprint when you when you hear that 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 stat, you know, in fixed income and short term interest rates is one point three percent in currencies, even less. Now in currencies, they 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 basically took the futures numbers, but then they grossed it up based on the fact that um, you know most of the currency trading is OTC. So so this is another area where where it's hard to discern what's the footprint because you know you could look at the you know currencies is a good example. If you just looked at futures. 
CTAs might look like they're a big player, but obviously most of, of volumes in currency trading are traded um, uh, uh, OTC. And, and equally, obviously, equities, there's... Um, they give the number, you know, global equity market cap is $100 trillion. Now, global equity futures open interest is, is on average about one, $1.3 So you've got the futures, but then obviously you have the, the real money equities tra- traded in the background. So, it, you know, when you look at taking all of this together, even um, this equity market participation of 10 followers has never exceeded 3.5% of total futures directional volume over any five-day period. Um, so again... Highlighting that, uh, yeah, it, it, particularly with respect to equities, uh, there, there doesn't appear to be a, a large footprint. Now, I, I guess you could say, okay, that's just trend. You've got short-term traders as well. They could, at certain times, their trading could line up with um, with trend, and, and that's possible. But, you know, I don't think there's, you know, how much is, is the short-term traders? You, maybe it's under 10 billion or so, maybe a bit more. And, and those guys can be short-term momentum and mean reversion, so they can be going uh, the other way at, at, at times as well. So, you know, I thought um, it, it was interesting. And that's based, as we said, on, on that kind of relatively conservative, possibly higher estimate of $300 billion, um, in, in in CTA exposure. Uh, sorry, trend following exposure. So, you know, but it is an interesting question. Like, what, what, what do we think would be a reasonable estimate of of what to expect? You know, like if we were, if if somebody was to say to you, well, if the market goes down, how much uh, CTA selling do you think we'll see in the S and P? Uh, so I started thinking about that. Um, you know, first question is, are CTAs long the S and P five hundred at the moment? Um, hard to know. <laughs> I mean, I would guess looking at the chart. Probably, I would say. I mean, interestingly, we talked about replication. Uh, so I looked at DBMF, uh, which is a proxy for the industry. Um, and across equities, DBMF is long 23%. But it's uh, all in the MSCI Europe, Asia, Far East. So MSCI EFI long 46%. Actually short in the S&P 500, 13%. And short the MSCI emerging markets, uh, 9.5%. So that's what... When DBMF do their do the replication, that's what they're coming out with now. I don't, you know, I they're only trading three contracts, three contracts. So you know, maybe it's 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 imprecise. Uh, and as I say, if I was to look at the chart of the S and P five hundred, you've got a you know obviously a very long term uptrend. Then we had a trend down last year. We've had a trend up. So it's kind of you've got conflicting factors. But I would say over kind of the short to medium term horizon that the market has been rising for the last few months so i would expect unbalanced probably more longs and shorts yeah i i think i think it's probably something that we might come uh and talk about a, a little bit later i mean of course i have you know insights to how a longer term manager is positioned and um you know that's not on the long side for for s p and, and nasdaq right but of course in europe where you've got new all-time highs you you have to be long i mean that's just the way it works right so i think there's a lot of uh, mixed uh, i think equities actually is a very mixed bag for managers right now and it's very depending on your speed of trend and and this is also why to me it's even more infuriating that you have people coming out with these kind of um, you know uh, stories because as i said i really do believe that this is only being created to get people to you know trade more um uh, which is which is a great shame and and even if they were right even if they were right well, what can you use it for you can't just plug out of the thin air and say okay well you have to go short because ctas 
go short. No, no, that's a, that's the worst reason because we're 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 wrong sixty percent of the time. So don't go short just because we do it. But like say, if we were to guess, so, so say if you were to say, okay, maybe DBMF is is right in aggregate and CTAs are about twenty percent, twenty three percent long equities. Because actually, if you look at a stock gen trend indicator, which is just one simple moving average across, uh, and that that indicator is long, it's fifteen equity contracts. So. You know, there could be could be on balance a bit long, um, but but what would the size of that long position? You know, I would guess somewhere between five and ten percent. Um, so even if it was ten percent, based on the three hundred billion, so that would be you know thirty billion of of notional exposure. Now, you know, it doesn't. It beggars belief that you know once the two hundred day moving average is breached, that all CTAs are going to rush in to sell their you know their, their long position. So you know that's that would get worked out over the course of probably ten days or something. I would guess maybe longer. So you're looking at maybe you know three billion of selling on on any given day on that basis, as opposed to the what did they say thirty billion or fifty billion or whatever it was. But but Alan, this is the thing, and I I, I hope people are learning um, or taking this away from our conversations with these managers, because you and I know well that that's not how it works. And when I say that, I'll give a very simple uh, example. And that is, you know, let's just say that the market moves down, and and you need to to sell some stuff. Well, if the volatility changes at the same time, you may not need to sell nearly as much. Meaning there are so many, or if correlations change, you may not need. To, so there are so many moving parts, and this is why when people who know better come out and make such claims saying, oh, if the market goes below the 200-day moving average, then this whole... I mean, if it was so simple, why have we spent, you know, almost 50 years trying to work out how to do trend following? If we could just read Bloomberg and say, oh, it's the 200-day moving average all the CTAs are looking at, how did I not know that, right? I mean, it's complete crazy. Nevertheless, we're here fighting the good fight and just letting people know that they should not always trust uh, what they read uh, in the news, I guess. But anyways, it was a great piece uh, from Quantica. Um, and um, so at least we have some some numbers. And actually, one of the things that I remember from your, the paper that you co-wrote uh, at Abbey was the surprise I had when you had ju- adjusted. I think actually the AUM you got to, correct me if I'm wrong, was even down to about $120 billion, uh, in trend. It was much, much lower than the headline number that we often quote. And of course, let's not forget that the 365 billion or 75 billion, whatever the number is that Barclay Hedge uh, quotes, I mean, about half of that is Bridgewater. But we have no idea. I mean, one thing I would say, uh, Bridgewater could be a trend follower, but they've never called themselves a trend follower. So I would be surprised if they were a trend follower that just follows price. I, I don't think they are. No, absolutely. No, I think that was I, 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 when we did that study. We went uh, through all of the, the managers, and basically, if the, if their correlation to trend was below, I think we cut off was zero point six. Um, we categorized them as non-trend, and if it was point six or higher, categorized them as trend, and then obviously adjusted the AUM to 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 the median, which was thirteen vol. And yeah, I'd have to check. It, it would. I think you're right. About one hundred and twenty, one hundred and thirty billion. Obviously, we've had performance since then so so that number would be a bit higher now but um yeah 300 probably 
probably no, but it's good that they use yeah. that number because at least we're not trying to underplay no, exactly. uh, our role. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's perfect. And their philosophy actually. around taking out the calendar um, uh, spread trading was to that to that aim as well to try and be as conservative as possible. Well, we've got more goodies in our bag today um, because you found two other papers from our friends over at Aspect um, that you thought would be educational. So why don't we dive into those? I only had a very quick skim of them, so I'll let you take the lead. But I think the first paper um, that they um, published uh, recently is called Trend Following Why? Question mark. Um, that's always a good question. It is, yeah. I mean, it's uh, there's a couple of pa- papers that they are both, I, I, I think, educational um, type papers. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously trend following why is very much around, um, you know, why, 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 why trend following in your portfolio? Um, you know, all of the, all of the, I, I guess, the uh, typical arguments around uh, diversification, um, you know, uh, Return enhancement, uh, reducing drawdown, re- you know, re- enhancing risk-adjusted returns, etc., uh, and and looking at the performance in different kind of um, equity regimes. So, um, you know, I, I, I thought it was just ni- nicely summarised. But within there, there was one interesting chart, which which I knew you would like because uh, it's a favourite topic of yours, which is uh, um, how commodities do in periods of crisis. Um, so, what did they have in their in their paper, there is just um, the the PL attribution basically by the different market sectors by year, which is quite interesting. Uh, you know, you can go back and, and kind of remember the, the the history and what drove markets in different periods. But it is interesting when you look back at uh, some of the big years in in managed futures, how you know which markets drove the performance. So obviously, everybody always likes to go back to two thousand and eight, and you can see in in that period actually, I think currencies looked like they were negative, but all of the commodities were positive. So um, energy markets positive, um, uh, agriculturals uh, positive. You can see metals there as well, and obviously. Um, I suppose that was the year where, you know, obviously crude oil had gone up and then came back down. So I, I think CTA has made money on both the long and, and short side. You can see in the previous two years, uh, 06, 07, um, or in that period, you know, the metals, I know the uh, uh, commodity, um, copper had a big uptrend in that period. So you can see the predominance of, of metals in, in, in that period. And, uh, and obviously, you know, more recently, in um, in COVID, you know, obviously bonds a, a big driver in that period. But um, you know, if you go back to two thousand to two thousand two, and that bear market again, uh, energies was was a big driver there. So um, I'm struggling to make out some of the colours here. Yeah, stock indices to an extent back in two thousand two. Um, but yeah, very interesting because it is a topic that that we we, we allude to. You know, people talk about you know, where does this diversification come from in equity downturns? And, you know, the initial assumption is often, oh, it's from being short equities. And then, well, no, that's not always the case. And then it was always, well, it's just that CTAs were always long bonds in those periods. And, and that's why they made money. Uh, and obviously bonds was was a big driver last year, but on the short side. But but it's the commodity story that that is interesting as well. Um, and and it is interesting how, you know, I guess the, the, the intuition around this is when you get 
particularly equity bear markets that tend to be associated with economic downturns. So that influences demand for, for lots of stuff. So you tend to get, particularly in the economically sensitive commodities like um, copper and, and crude oil, you tend to get moves in those. But you can, you know, obviously last year we saw um, agricultural commodities being influenced by, by the war in Ukraine as well. So I just thought it was a useful, uh, for, for, for people who don't have access to that kind of data, useful uh, to see that in, 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 in a nice visual yeah, no, absolutely. I think I, I agree. Of course, people should just be aware that this is, of course, one way of trend following that has produced these type of of attributions. Um, but no, I mean, uh, it's it's always useful with uh, with good educational material that explains uh, some of these uh, benefits, and especially when you put some some pictures to it, because uh, you know a picture says a thousand words, as they say, and I think that is that is true. But they didn't just do the why trend they also did the how yeah for sure and and that it that is very much uh this is a, a literally a step-by-step guide to to doing trend following at a, at a high level like what, what are the steps you you go through you know from literally getting your your market price data uh and, and you know it, it's good how it that explains that you know um the S&P is, is measured in index points, uh, crude oil is in dollars, you know, you have to make adjustments for this. Different markets have different volatilities. So you have to adjust for all of these different things. They they create um, their own risk adjusted returns and, and then look at all the markets on, on the same uh, playing field and then talk about the different ways of, of trend identification, you know, moving averages um, being, being the most uh, typical. And, and then how do you move from kind of having an indicator how does that go from a you know indicator to to position uh, and they have a kind of a, um, a picture there of how you know a, a typical trend develops and how the, the strength of the trend uh, signal evolves and how that translates into different um, uh, uh, position sizing and then the, the, how you build in or, or account for volatility scaling and, and, and sector weight so all of, all of the stuff that I guess Hardcore listeners of TTU would probably know, but for anybody who hasn't developed a trend uh, program themselves, uh, I, I, thought, I thought it would be a, a, a good resource. Um, but interesting as well, because it, it's very much how the kind of the European style uh, trend following, and this is kind of the ongoing debate we hear about on Top Traders and Plug, with some people being advocates of not volatility sizing and looking for outliers. The aspect approach is very much of having the largest position at at the kind of meat of the trend and then looking you know looking to be more scaled back as the trend becomes overextended and the risk of of a trend reversal uh, becomes uh, higher so so it is very much constructed and explained from from that perspective and as we know we there is an alternative view of 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 basically not volatilizing and keeping your exposures high and living with the risk of those reversals but from from the perspective of what we might call the more typical European approach, uh, I thought it was a good explanation and and worthwhile for people to take a look at. Yeah, which is kind of nicely uh, a nice segue for us to the last topics we want to talk about um, today, which is kind of our takeaway so far um, with all the managers we've spoken to and the conversations we've had. And of course, this topic uh, has also uh, uh, come up. And I will actually go as far as saying that I don't think necessarily it's a European um, choice anymore. I think what we've come across, that's one of my takeaways at, at least, is that I think most 
uh, of the managers we, uh, if not all the managers we've spoken to actually so far, uh, are of the school that you need to uh, adjust for. You need to adjust your risk on a daily basis. You can't just do it through uh, initial sizing and then a, a trailing stop loss. But I will also go on record to say that in the long run, um, you know, returns are not super different. Maybe the path of how they get to the returns might be a little bit different. So it's it's hard to say uh, one is better than the other. Uh, but I will say that, of course, you can have your own opinion, but you can't have your own data. So um, when when you do look at the data and you do compare at least people who are known to have static position sizing with people who are known to have um, dynamic position sizing, which is not the same as, by the way, volatility targeting. That's completely different. Um, then it does uh, look like the evidence uh, is in favor of the people using dynamic position sizing, but we don't want to open that can of, can of worms today. Um, we don't want to get too many hate tweets either, so, uh, so we're just going to leave it at that. But Tell me a little bit from your perspective, Alan, what are some of the takeaways uh, so far from your side? Yeah, I think um, a few interesting themes have definitely come up. You know, um, we, we had Katie Kaminsky on uh, talking about Crisis Alpha, and I, and I think what she spoke about, I think, resonated with a lot of people in terms of explaining, um, you know, that that trend following isn't a crisis alpha strategy per se, but has can achieve crisis alphas at, at times, which I think makes sense. Uh, and why? Because the strategy is uh, opportunistic and unbiased and, and liquid. So I think that that was a nice kind of interesting um, kind of uh, explanation of that that whole area. But, you know, more generally, it, 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 there, is, there is this trade-off that, that, that CTAs are trying to solve for, and that's certainly something that came up in all of the conversations that you have. You want to generate absolute return. At the same time, drawdowns are painful. So you want to have, think about, do you want to try and mitigate drawdowns in some ways? Um, and at the same time, what's the overall objective? Is it just to generate absolute return or is it absolute return and crisis alpha? And if so, do you want to do something to your trend portfolio to make it more uh, crisis alpha proof, uh, I guess? So so you've kind of got these conflicting um, uh, objectives, maybe, uh, I think fair to say. And, and then you have different levers that, and the levers being, you know, okay, whether you're pure trend or not, um, you know, as we talked about, you could add in some non-trend like carry to mitigate your drawdown, but at the expense of the of the crisis alpha characteristic, you can trade faster and that can help you at turning points. Uh, there there seems to be a general acceptance that that can be helpful in terms of, you know, uh, dealing with those equity turning points, but, but it comes at a cost uh, in terms of t absolute return, you know. Um, and I think the other point that, that that really has come out very strongly through all of the conversations, particularly with the larger managers, is that, you know, there's a general acceptance of all of these trade-offs now. And you know, it's 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 a it's a conversation between the, the those CTAs and, and their investors as to exactly what they're achieving in their in their portfolio. So it's not like people are 
slipping in a bit of non-trend <laughs> without saying it. So I, I don't get that sense. I, I think, I think you know, I think in the diversified systems, it's understood that 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 those that there is that diversification in there for, to try and deliver a smoother return profile. But you can get the uh, you can get the pure trend program from from those managers as well. So I think that's certainly an, an interesting development. How. Rightly or wrongly, it's it's been left to the to the investor to decide uh, to to a large extent. Um, yeah, so I think that would, that that's the, definitely one of the big themes that, that have come come out. What, what did you think of that? Yeah, no, agree. So, in a sense, that what surprised me was this thing that that many of our friends and peers have gone down to this being a solution provider type, uh, you know, structure and. I um I understand fully uh why they're doing it I think and I also think that there can be some some uh, benefits uh to it but I also think there are some dangers and I have this sneaky feeling inside me that clients don't necessarily always know what is best for them when it comes to this strategy um so they're going to choose something that feels good but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's good for the best thing for their portfolio so but um, I'm sure our friends can guide them safely uh, into making uh, some good choices. A, a couple of other things that has stood out uh, to me. One was, and I actually think, maybe you can remember this, I think it was Phil from uh, CFM, who I just published the episode with today, uh, so it's out live. I think that he mentioned something that they had studied the broader CT industry quite a lot, and what they found was that there was nothing left once you took out trend. So trend was really the dominating performance driver of the CTA industry. And I guess if you look at the, just very simply, the short-term traders index, you compare it to the trend index, I mean, of course, it's that that would support it completely. But I thought it was interesting that he brought that up. Um, I had not thought about it, but clearly they had looked into it, and I'm pretty sure he was the one who uh, brought it up. I thought that was really interesting. You know, where does the value uh, of the CTA space really come from? Um, yeah, another thing that actually uh, was very interesting to uh, to dig into was uh, with AQR. Uh, the fact that they have moved away from pure price trend, and now they, uh, my understanding was, I could be wrong, that they probably kind of 50-50 price trend and economic trend, as they call it, or conviction trend. I'm not entirely sure what uh, what uh, Yao was calling it, but uh, I thought that was very interesting. Um, and it goes to show that um, you, as an investor, if you want to find pure trend, you have to look a little bit under the hood to find them. And also, I guess, um, what I've learned so far from, um, I can't remember how many we've uh, published now, but, but quite a few, there aren't that many true pure trend followers left, uh, frankly. Um, so that's another thing that I um, that I take away from these conversations. I also take away from the conversations when we spoke to uh, to Nicole. Um, um, one thing actually back to the footprint, but of course they're short term managers. So it's completely different from what I would say at, at, at you know trend following, but where they talked about that in some markets they were about 1% of the daily volume, that that number surprised me, uh, frankly. Um, I, that That's another insignificant number. And so uh, good on them that they can still find ways of delivering alpha. And so, yeah, I mean, there's so many. It's been a very fascinating journey for me personally. Um, some of the people we, of course, knew well um, before we spoke to them. Uh, others uh, were new to us, not the firms, but the individuals. And it's been such a pleasure to... Uh, 
to to just feel how open they have been in our conversations. There's been no, you know, nothing that we couldn't really bring up, and and they, you know, it's not that they were given questions in advance that they could rehearse. I mean, they had a good idea of the topics because uh, they're the same uh, for every recording. Um, but I think they've been incredibly gracious with their time and with their openness and their insights. And I think that it has demonstrated how how trend is not the same uh, once you dig into it. And uh, and I think that's incredibly exciting, uh, frankly. Also makes it maybe, you can speak to that maybe, Alan. It also makes the job of a, an allocator maybe a little bit harder than perhaps I appreciated uh, before, you know, after having heard these things, you kind of think, well, it, it can't be that difficult, but I can understand why it is. Yeah, no, I mean, definitely everybody had their particular flavor. And, um, you know, I think I think from the allocator perspective, you, you know, you're aware of all of these uh, nuances uh, with the different managers. And, you know, people always say, who, who do you think is the best trend follower? And, or you know, it's like, well, you know, can't say, you know, everybody does it slightly differently and, and there's merits and, and it's there's often those choices reflect lots of different things. Like, you know, uh, you know, um, you know, not wanting to have the pure trend exposure or feeling that that's a better way. And, and you know, people have been um, very upfront and saying they're, they are running a business as well. And, and you have to be conscious of that and having, you know, having a stable and consistent business is, is, is important too. So, I mean, you have to be conscious of that. Um, so I think all of those are, are, are relevant factors. Um, it's been interesting as well. I, I mean, I've enjoyed hearing from those managers who have done those long-term studies, you know, CFM, 200 years um, of trend following and AQR, 100 years. And then, yeah, also reference that they had done a, you know, a 50-year study on macro momentum, um, which is interesting too. Um, so that, I, I found that interesting. And and the CFM, um, you know, 200 years, and, 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 you know, we talked around that, what's the relevance of, of those, you know, the old data, etc. But it is, you know, th- there is that persistence in, in the older correlation in markets that 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 goes back over that very long time period so um you know i think that that's been uh, really interesting too so uh and quest you know as you talked about quest they're a very interesting point they make about their preference for trading in futures over over options even though they want to express a long vol profile and how you can create that using certain contracts and building your positions to, to generate an option like uh, payoff profile, but how it can be more efficient to do that in the futures markets. Yeah. And I will actually say that I think also, um, I think all of our conversations has, has been phenomenal. They've been delightful. There is uh, something for everyone in all of them, for sure. But I'm also very excited about the ones we haven't released yet, um, because some of them uh, were that we, we've recorded, a couple that's uh, coming out next week, um, with people that I did not necessarily know personally, at least one of them I, I didn't know personally, um, and and he was fantastic. I mean, it was a very, very interesting, very open, very frank conversation. Yeah, I mean, and 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 you and I have decided to uh, continue the journey a little bit longer than we originally anticipated because I think we both realized how enjoyable it's been, and more more importantly, we are obviously trying to on one side help investors look at the space by giving them access to this information, and of course, we are trying to help the managers, you know, um, get this spotlight, and so that we can help, you know, the industry as a whole. So uh, hopefully. 
that's the way it's being uh, received. So um, as I'm sure you know, I would uh, like to encourage you um, to maybe help us a little bit, get a broader audience um, by leaving a rating and review uh, on Amazon, Spotify, Apple, um, and share these episodes with your friends, your colleagues, or anyone you know that are into investing where you think, well, they might actually learn something, uh, not necessarily from Alan and me, but from our, a lot of our guests, at least there should be a few nuggets to uh, to uh, to pick up. Um, and uh, you can, of course, also, as, as you uh, often do, write into us and, and have uh, your questions brought up. Info at toptradersonplug.com is the email. Next week, I'm joined by Rob. Um, I guess he's getting ready for his book tour. Uh, I don't know if it's a global book tour, but it must be a book tour of some sort soon. So make sure you send in your questions um, for that uh, episode, um, and we'll do our best to uh, bring them up. From Alan and me, thanks ever so much for listening. We uh, can't wait to be back with you next week. And in the meantime, as usual, Take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.